Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, um, welcome to uh, another edition of Word in Your Ear. We're coming to you, um, as ever, from the tremendous uh, The Islington Pub on uh, Tollpuddle Street in uh, London, swinging N1. Now, um, the age uh, before the internet tended to favour uh, individuals of enormous, enormous um, charisma and enormous presence and character. And uh, tonight's subject uh, was first on radio, on, on local radio, at the age of 12, reciting his poetry. His first um, national television exposure was playing with his band, I think as a teenager, on top of a, a heap of silage on Esther Ranson's That's Life. And uh, as I'm sure you know, his first uh, radio one play uh, was secured by his turning up in reception with a mushroom biryani for John Peel. And, um, you know, these and, 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 and other possibly slightly more um, political uh, and substantial uh, aspects of his personality are captured brilliantly in a terrific memoir uh, called Still Suitable for Minors, spelt uh, M-I-N-E-R-S, Natch. Uh, and it came out 30 years ago and has been updated and it's been republished. It's been updated twice. No, no, 20 years ago. 20 years, oh, it's 20 years ago. Yeah. Sorry, 20, 20 years ago. <laughs> and it's been updated and, uh, and it's now out again. And so please welcome its uh, author, Andrew Collins. Well, it, 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 it normally, great... normally, I have to say, we're, we're at this point in the evening, uh, normally Mark and I are slightly nervous because we're never quite sure whether the guest is going to be able to talk. <laughs> yeah. But this evening, uh, Andrew Collins, it's not, not a problem at all, is it? And also, we're, Andrew has a reputation, in, it's only in the world of the, the, the departed world of the music press, as being the most reliable man in show business, hasn't he? Uh, and so, True. normally, we're and looking around the room ago, at 7.15, no thinking, where the hell is he? Has he got the right night? You know, <laughs> no, it's Andrew Collins, it'll be fine. And it was. And he came dashing in, breasted the tape, just as we were ready to start. Lovely to see you. And you. So lovely to see you. And there's a great endorsement on the front of this book, Love Me or Hate Me, It's a Great Read, Billy Bragg. Yeah. That's Which I think is you. brilliant, actually. And it also gives you some idea of his self-awareness. It's a, it's a very black and white thing. You know, people either absolutely detest the barking voice yeah. or they absolutely adore him. So why did you Why do you feel so strongly 20 years ago, sorry, not 30, 20 years ago? Uh, about I was still working writing. for you 30 years ago. That's right. Yeah. It was after I left uh, the company that we all worked at together yeah. in 1997. Uh, that a former weekly music press journalist called Ian Gittins, uh, who'd worked for The Enemy, as in not The Enemy, but Melody Maker. He'd worked for Our Enemies. Uh, we were at The Enemy. They were our, um, our nemeses, even though they were run by the same company yes. and existed one floor above us at King's Reach Tower, uh, now owned by Time, Inc. Um, they were our enemies on paper. And so Ian Gittins should have been somebody that I obviously disliked, but as soon as he left Melody Maker, he joined Virgin Books and was tasked with... Commissioning some decent music books. That's what they said to him. And he called me up because he knew I was out of a job and said, oh, you've got a bit of time on your hands. Would you ever like to write a book? Who would you write a book about? But why did, you, why did you choose Billy Bragg? I chose Billy Bragg because the other choice was the Cocteau Twins. Who, oh, it was either or. We wouldn't, be sitting, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. If I... <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It'll be probably worth more on eBay. 
so, what, uh, what was it like writing the, the updated version? Because when you did this, it was, again, before the internet, and it was kind yeah. of, you know, it was all bits of paper on the floor. And, it's very uh, strange. Uh, we've, we've updated it. I say we because Billy has been involved all the way along. It's an official biography, but in that, and not in the sense that he kind of acted in a Stalin-esque way and sort of censored parts. In fact, he didn't censor any of it. Uh, even the slightly dodgy story involving a stripper and a banana, <laughs> which he and his wife... Juliet said it was okay for me to put in, but I checked with both of them. That's as far as it, you know, as far as we sailed towards yeah. censorship. So he didn't uh, stop me writing anything, and he allowed me to write what I wanted to write. He did read it. I wanted him to read it back, but that was it. So it's official in the sense that every time we update it, he helps me, and we spend the day together, usually at his clifftop mansion in Dorset. That's TM. That's what the son call it. There's, indeed, there's been some controversy yeah. about that. Yeah, well, because he moved house to a slightly bigger house, uh, which is obviously illegal. Well, it's illegal if you're a kind of, uh, you know, sort of socialist kind of democratic, you know. I don't think it is. Uh, when, he, when he moved to this place, no, I don't think they, it is they, they, they ran a helicopter shot of uh, what was a house that was obviously not a terraced house uh, and had a roof and all sorts of other luxuries. <laughs> yeah. And they worked out, they obviously found out very easily how much it cost to buy, which is actually peanuts compared to what it's probably worth now. Uh, it was a half a million pounds. So they said he's moved to a, a half a million pound cliff top mansion. He's cliff top mansion. He's, he's cast aside his socialist convictions and, uh, and he lives in the country like a country squire. Yeah. Uh, it's as if they, they should have said the same thing about Ben Elton because he wore a jacket on television. You know, you can't wear a jacket, you can't have a house, you can't have a, you can't have a family, live a normal life. But in fact, Billy uh, has been more politically engaged, possibly, since he moved down there, maybe as a, an act of kind of atonement, but even so, he's become very interested in local politics because he lived in Barking in Essex and there was a particular kind of politics going on there. Slightly different. It's more like Liberal Democrats versus Tories down there, so he's kind of got into tactical voting. So he's moved to Dorset, which he obviously did because he and his family wanted to move down yeah, away from London, yeah. somewhere nicer, with some sea air. Um, they, he hasn't become apolitical or right-wing. People do say you get right, more right-wing as you get older. I fucking don't. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you. Um, I get worse as I get older. Uh, and I think he's the same. He's just more focused now. And he actually went door-to-door campaigning for the Liberal Democrats when he first, the first general election came up when he moved to Dorset. So it's not as if he now sits in a big bath chair laughing at the poor people. <laughs> Far from it. So, so give us some clues about his early life, because he was, he was uh, you know, in, in barking in Essex. Yeah, I mean, but we're looking at a splendid picture of, of, uh, of Barking Bus Station, yeah, which is, is very stimulating to look at. It's still the same now. Um, and I went to Barking for the first time when I, when I went down to start the book with Billy. Um, in terms of timing, the timing was brilliant, because when I asked Billy if he'd be interested in me writing a book about him, I'd already written about him a lot in Q and in the NME, so he kind of trusted me. And what he said that he liked about my writing about him, this is not bigging me up, it's what he said, was that I didn't take him too seriously because he said he had a lot of book offers from writers who were very earnest, you know, very SWP, and and that's what they wanted to write about. And he didn't want to be portrayed that way in a book. So when I asked him, it was good timing because he was 39. He and his partner had had a child, a baby, and thus he started to think about, you know, his legacy and family and passing on, you know, what he had to the next generation. And he was about to turn 40. He was also moving out of a flat in West London. So all of his shit was in there. And that included about a dozen full carrier bags from supermarkets full of his cuttings. So he oh, said, really? Yeah, so he was moving out and he said, I drove to where his flat was. He filled the, my car up with plastic bags and I went back to, <laughs> went back to London. Does he talk about in the book, I, I think you quote, quote him in the book, um, being very impressed when he met Paul Weller. Yeah, he, was, the, he, he, he and Weller were the same age, not almost exactly. When Billy had his uh, 50th birthday party, which was, was set up for him at the South Bank in London, um, against his will, certainly against his knowledge. And what they did brilliantly was they snuck Paul Weller in. It was a kind of evening with Billy Bragg, and then downstairs... He burst the out of a cake. Well, he, he, <laughs> he snuck in the back door and just appeared behind the DJ desk. So when, by the time Billy got to his own party, Paul Weller was DJing for him. So that's how much it meant to him. And in fact, recently, um, Billy went, went on to talk about the book that he's written about, History of Skiffle, to uh, Jules on later, not to play, just to talk. And Weller was on there playing some stuff from his brand new album, the most recent one. And Billy said he was watching Weller, and he thought, well, Weller's 59, so am I, and he is totally fired up by his latest music. So he was fully inspired by Weller once again, even though they'd been on Red Wedge together. And Red Wedge, for those too young to remember, uh, was an attempt by music to get young people to vote 
vote at all, vote Labour mainly, to kick out the Tories in the mid-80s. And it failed miserably in the sense that Labour also failed and, it, and just shut up shop. But Paul Weller denounced it very quickly. He was up for it and he played the gigs, but once it had failed, he then became very honest and said he didn't like travelling around with the Red Wedge bands because they didn't like it if he talked about shoes. <laughs> oh, okay. he, that was his actual quote. And so he didn't feel that this I was right. That. He would rather sit around talking about shoes and fashion than bloody yeah. silly old politics. So to see Weller now at 59, and, he, and it's really brilliant the stuff he's been doing in his kind of, you know, in the last 10 years. Billy thought, OK, yes, it's OK to become 60 and carry on doing this. But did, doesn't he talk a bit in the book about the meeting Paul Weller when Paul Weller is cutting out his press cuttings and putting in a... Yes, I in mean... A, he, in a scrapbook. Yeah, he knew... But he was really impressed that yeah. he did that. He, the organisational skill of doing that, he was impressed by, and also the kind of self-mythologisation, sort of pre-mythologisation. And so Billy started to do something well, similar. He, he, started, he kept he, all He kept his, everything, but he didn't stick it in a book. He so did he cut it out? I have to know this. Did he cut it out himself, or did his no, no, mum he, cut oh, it? No, no, he cut it out himself. He yeah. did it himself. Yeah. But I, lo- I love this, because it, it now makes you think that rock stars who tend to say, oh, I never read my own press, are probably actually up in an attic, you know... Furiously cutting yeah, stuff but that out. used to be. It was a serious activity, wasn't it? Cutting these quite small pieces yeah. out of mentioned. local papers, yeah. music papers, sticking them in a book to prove that it had happened. Yeah. Because you assumed it wouldn't happen for long. Absolutely you know? right. And before Billy became famous, he had to pass through the British Army. So he basically gave up. Yeah. So he started a band with his next-door neighbour, um, Wiggy, and they played kind of Rolling Stones, small faces, because that's yeah, yeah. what they were listening to. Then they went to see The Clash, realised that The Clash were just a cool version of the Rolling Stones, using the same kind of amps, so they got into the clash and, and punk basically, you know, entered their souls and they formed a band called Riff Raff and then went to a, uh, a tiny studio in Oundle in uh, rural North- Northamptonshire, not so far from where I was born, but more rural and they stayed there, uh, I think for a few weeks, recording some what would be their first and only EP which was then put out by Stiff, I think. So he had a, an early flush of being in a band and having music, playing music, recording music. I think we've got a picture of them, actually, here, yeah. And that's Wiggy that's on the right. That's Wiggy, he's next door He didn't look far for his friend. He lived next door, and that's Billy there. And there's another fantastic bit in the book around this time, I think, when he and somebody else break into Oundle Public School... Yeah, that's right. ..and steal a sack of potatoes that's to true. distribute to the poor. Yeah. Is that right? Well, what happens at I Oundle... thought that was absolutely yeah. wonderful. Oundle School is a, a fairly uh, toxic uh, public school of old, yeah. and what they famously do, and I don't know if they still do it, I'm sure they do, uh, was basically they throw coins out to the paupers from the windows of the... Of the, you know, from the safety of the, the rooms that they presumably yeah. live in. Um, so, you know, if you are the punk rock band that have moved in down the road, yeah. clearly you're going to be at odds with these people. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they, uh, they well, they, hate, they hated the Oundle people, and Oundle hated them, and they felt like rock and roll outlaws, which is exactly how you want to feel at that age, isn't it? Completely. So that's what they were feeling like there. They were feeling like outlaws. And they, they stole the potatoes because they felt that, you know, these lot had it easy, and uh, it was cold winter. They didn't have any uh, central heating in their little house, so they got potatoes. Do you have to kind of... When you go back and revisit a book like this, you know, that you, re- you wrote in the pre-internet yeah. time, you know, is it kind of a shock to be reminded of the world when all those things were really difficult to do? Yeah. Were they finding a studio... Everything, everything was, was so difficult. hard. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Billy, because Billy still records, he now makes the most of the the internet and yeah. shoving stuff out online for free or sometimes charging for it, but often just sticking his new song out because he's recorded it. He's recorded it at home, you know, in a basement, and there it is. It's on. So he loves technology in that sense. But, yeah, he remembers when it was very difficult. And also, you needed a review in Sounds or Melody Maker, a mention, at least, of your name to get you to the next stage. So those... Carrier bags of clippings were yeah. so important, were yeah, they? Absolutely, which is why he still had them in 1997 when I started writing his history. Yeah, and yeah. it was great. I was really pleased, although they were in bags and I had to sort them out. I was still felt that you know, God, I hope the house doesn't burn down. Uh, any other day will be fine, but not while I've got this stuff. You're a, that would have been it. You're you? a pretty organised person, though, aren't you? Yeah, fairly organised. I think you have to be, really. I, when I read it, I had to read most people in that profession are not very organised <laughs> no, at true. all. The, the interesting thing about Billy is that his partner uh, for many, many years is Juliet, who worked in the music business yeah. as a manager. She worked for Two Tone at the very beginning, managed the selector. So she had all that before she joined Go Discs, where she met him. So she and he basically now run 
Billy Bragg. They, they Billy Bragging. Yeah, they yeah, absolutely yeah. do, completely on their own. He said when they, when they set it up, it's fantastic because we now have, have complete control over what we do. We don't have to use third parties. It doesn't really have a manager anymore. They basically manage him between them uh, and book the tours. So all that stuff that you normally pay a third party to do and money starts to leak away, they just do it themselves. And he said to me, you know, we've never worked so fucking hard in our lives. Yeah, but, they're, yeah, but they're really thoroughly yeah, enjoying yeah, it yeah. and there's no one else involved. Billy owns every song that he ever wrote. Now, how often do you hear that? Right, not he, often. He did a deal with um, Go Discs, who signed him up, Andy McDonald, who set this small independent label up with all the right attitude. Um, then it, it was partly bought out by Polygram. Polygram. So he, Billy realised he had a couple of shares. It's quite complicated, but I'll do it really briefly. Oh, Billy no, realised he, he had a couple of shares yeah. which Andy McDonald had basically given him when he signed up. He didn't know, he kind of didn't know, didn't want them, didn't think they meant anything. But then suddenly, when Polygram wanted to buy a controlling share of the shares and thus take over more control of GoDiscs, which was doing very well because it had the House Martins as well as yeah. Billy Bragg and then the Beautiful South, um, Billy found out that his shares were suddenly key to the deal being done or not done. So he had to sell his shares. And in doing so, he made an awful lot of money, which he didn't want because he didn't feel he'd earned it. It didn't mean anything to him, but he had to have it in order to, for Andy to go through with selling most of his record company to the man. And then gave it away to And he all gave the it staff. away. It, yeah. He didn't tell the rest of the staff at Go Discs, but he basically did a deal with Andy. He said, if I can have all of my songs and the rights to all my songs thus far, which was quite a few albums worth by then, then um, you can have the shares and I will put the shares into a trust so that if you ever if they ever buy the rest of the record company, that goes to all the people on this list who work at the company, which included Phil Jupiter's at the time, who was working as a kind, of, right. yeah, kind of T-boy Porky at the beginning. Yeah. yeah, and then store manager. So they all got, you know, hundreds of thousands it's of pounds when, when, when the company was, was basically pulled out from underneath these people. Instead of getting sacked and chucked out on the street, they, they got some money, which they didn't even know they were going to get. So, so in, in a sense, this book is a different story, isn't it, you're telling yeah, I mean, it, because the world changes and these people get older and yes. you know, everything in their lives changes. It's true. And, and, and when I started writing it, you know, there was enough of Billy's life to write about and get my teeth into because, you know, his career up to 1998 when it came out included the miners' strike and him being in the yeah. army and all that stuff. So there's loads to write about. But in the years since, it's always been interesting updating it. And when I did the last update, the one that's in the Sainsbury's Colours uh, version. That is um, uh, that left me in a quandary, which now we're at publication, so it's okay. I thought, what if Jeremy Corbyn gets ousted in some kind of bloodless coup? Then his whole book's last chapter is going to look silly. Thankfully, he's still hanging in there. Right. <laughs> Thank God for that. Did you find, though, going back to the, the point you were making earlier about the the story about um, I can't remember what it was about some scandalous story. Do you find that as somebody like that gets older? They're more relaxed about yeah, youthful I, indiscretions and so forth. They just think, oh, it adds to my legend. I'm not going to argue it with does. it. And you'd have to be a pretty hardcore Billy Bragg fan to, to know the story, the banana story. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, since I was allowed to put it in the book, I did put it in. I think you're going to have to tell us the story. Well, I don't want you to not buy the book because I'm telling you, but I will tell you. It's, yeah. it's one of the you stories. Point out what page it's on. Yeah. There's many equally good stories in the book. Yeah, right? yeah, I, yeah, think yeah. It, I think it might say in the... In the Is it in the index? The banana story. I'll tell you it and then you never need to read it. It's, uh, he'd done a gig at a college, I think it was. Something had either gone wrong. Um, that a stripper had been booked. It was a student event. So some clever dick in the Ents uh, secretary's office had booked a stripper. Um, would never happen now. And uh, certainly not one. You'd have to have both genders of stripper now. <laughs> yeah. In those days, it, it was a female gender, female gender stripper. And they wouldn't, the, there was a kind of tumult, I think, uh, amongst the quite understandably uh, politically correct students that they didn't want the stripper on. So the stripper then went to the backstage area where the band were and various other hangers-on and did them a private show. <laughs> uh, in, thank God, the days before, probably video cameras, yeah, 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 iPhones. Yeah. And uh, it, he sat at the front row. Uh, she, one of the tricks she did was to take a banana uh, to peel it and then place it inside herself and then take it out and offer it to somebody in the front row to take a bite from. And he was in the front row. So he did. So I mean, that's the full extent. Albert Goldman would have retired at that point. <laughs> they would. Exactly. Fuck it. I love the way that, no that, was, that was signed off by him and his wife. No problem. Yeah. But he, we sat in, in his front room and he said, is it OK if Andrew puts the banana story in? And she went, 
Yes. Have they got kids? Presumably. They have got, they've a got, son. got one uh, child. They've got a son who is in a band who, uh, for most of his uh, young life, thus far, although he's, he's a young man now, uh, he looked very much like a young Billy Bragg. Right. And, and so he goes by his mother's uh, surname. But they're in a band that are PMs and doing very nicely. And presumably he knows the banana story as well. Yeah, well, he'd read the book now. He yeah. really wanted the book writing so that his son could one day read it. So, yeah. so who were the people? Oh, we should ask about the army. Yeah, well, army. yeah, I mean, yeah. I never failed to be fascinated by the... Uh, Fascinating. The interaction with Billy, between Billy Bragg and the army. Well, my brother went into the army when he was 16, the same year that I went to London to go to art school. So, you know, I understand what it's like to, to live with a, a budding soldier. And he went because he wanted it to be his career. It was the only thing he was interested in. Whereas Billy joined because he had nothing else to do. And, you know, coming from Barking in Essex, it was basically Fords. You go to work for Fords. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much it. Or, and if you fail your 11 plus, as Billy did, that is your only option. You go and work at the, the car factory, which is like a town. There's less work going on there now, but it still, I think, dominates the skyline in Barking. So he instead, as I say, he went off to the country to get his head together with his mates, Riff Raff, and they made a record, and it was on stiff, and nobody bought it, but they felt they'd done it. And what was he going to do next? And so he said, I'll go and join the army and see the world. So he did. And it's a very brave thing to do because he understood the psychology of it. He was a little bit older than the age that most boys join up. So he was a little bit more worldly wise. But nevertheless, he didn't turn up, he didn't turn up and try and subvert the British army or the ways. He went with it. You know, he did what he did what he had to do. He understood what was going on in that the way a soldier is created is for them to be stripped of all of their personality and all of their free will in a quite a cruel yeah. way and then built back up. Yeah, absolutely. And when they give you your beret for the first time, my brother confirms this, you suddenly feel like you're, you're a yeah. person again. And so it's very clever. Uh, and in order to, you know create little human beings who will go and die for you in a war. But I remember, I, I remember the music press at the time, you know, uh, and I was probably guilty of myself, rather taking the piss out yes. of it. The idea that, oh, God, he can't be rock and roll if he joined the army, know. you know. And, uh, and actually, it's fascinating reading your book because it, it really helped form his character. You know, the fact that he's so commanding, you know, the fact that he's so kind of domineering and charismatic, a lot of that yeah. is to do with this business of getting to kind of corporal level in the, you know, yeah. isn't it, in terms I, of the army. Read that, have you read the, the, that American Bestseller, what's he called? Hillbilly Nation or something about the guy who. Explanation of Trump Nation, the guy who, who comes from very poor background in the Appalachians. And, well, uh, you know, that is, that is the way. Uh, 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 he, he ends up being a kind of yeah. Rhodes Scholar or whatever. But he joined the American, and he writes about the Marines. He said, The Marines are a really interesting organization because when you join, they assume you know nothing at all. You have to be taught yeah. everything from the beginning. Yeah. And that's a really valuable thing to be... Well, do you know, Billy came out of there with a, a, a deep knowledge of what the British Army was all about, what was about to happen, when in the kind of 84, 85, uh, people, even Smash Hits readers, thought that we might all die in a nuclear war. Oh, yeah, definitely. He, he understood where that would happen, why it would happen, where it would come, and he would know some of the people who'd be involved in the front line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he had a, it gave him a massive world experience, which most of us could only guess at. And so he came out of there determined not to do that. Yeah. But he went through it to decide that he didn't want to do it, which yeah. is, you know, it's yeah. a hell of a thing to do. How did he get from there to not long after well, you know, to, to, the, doing life right with Spy versus Spy? Yeah, he, um, he decided, he, he, once he got out, uh, he dyed his hair, he bleached his hair, and he's, there are photos of him with bleached white hair sticking up, a new version of Billy Bragg. He used to call himself Billy Bonkers when he was in the first punk band. Then he decided he would just become Billy Bragg and would just go with the guitar out there in the world and be like The Clash, but without yeah. four members. And he was turned on then politically, had lots to kick against. He'd been a, a kind of self-styled anarchist yeah. in the first um, general election he was allowed to vote in, uh, which would have been, about, I suppose, 79. Um, but by now, he had, he'd become... He'd learned what was going on out there in the world, you know on the plane and where we were going to get invaded if we did get invaded at all. So he decided he was, he was very angry, basically. He decided to go out there and do something with his anger. But the story of how he basically joined up with Peter Jenner, who um, was his manager then for, for all of his professional career until he took over himself. Peter Jenner used managed to manage... Pink Floyd and yeah, Roy Pink Harper. Floyd, uh, Ian Jury. Ian Jury. Yeah, so... Um, and he was working at Charisma Records which was on its last legs. He wasn't happy there. And it was 1982, I can tell you that for sure, because it was when The Tube was first on television in Channel 4. And Billy went round to see Peter Jenner just to get um, his demo tape into his office, into his hands, 
because he'd met him somewhere and he'd seen him play at the Tunnel Club in South East London and thought, I'm going to give him a tape. So we just basically rang the doorbell of Charisma, they let him in. And it was the end of the day and nobody was about, so he just wandered in. Another thing you can't do anymore. <laughs> he wandered into the building and they couldn't get the video to work. They wanted a video, they didn't know how to work the video and record the first ever episode of the, of the, of the Tube. And they assumed he'd come to fix it. So they said, if you, yeah. seriously, they said, have you come to fix the video? And he said, yes. And that was the lucky time to say yes when it was no. And luckily he could because his next door neighbour, Wiggy, was pretty good with that kind of stuff and he knew which, which bit to plug in to wear. So he set that up and said, oh, by the way, uh, I've got a, a demo tape. Would you like to have it? Peter Jenner could only say yes. At that <laughs> so that was his career. That started Brilliant. his career. And then you've got a champion. And what you need in those old days, again, impossible to imagine now, is a champion at the record company. Whoever they are, whatever they do, somebody who thinks you're worth backing up. Then he found a second champion who was Jeff Chegwin, who, was, uh, who is the brother of the Keith. late Keith Chegwin, okay. who worked at Chapel, the publishers. And he had a tiny bit of a budget and liked Billy's tape, and so they, they recorded some tracks. So that was how he got going. Um, was, he, was he... I mean, I suppose it relates to the point that Mark was making. It, was he... He must have been helped enormously by the fact that he, he could just talk to people. He was, yeah. he was sociable. He, was, he could put himself over, couldn't he? It's true. I, I always think that I've got very far on not very much by talking to people and being nice and yeah. punctual, as you said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It means a lot. And when he took the biryani round to John Peel's, he'd just been having a kickabout with Jeff Chegwin and some of the others, and they had the car. Like, you can imagine the scene. In those old days, there was a car, and they all, after the match, went and sat down round the car listening to John Peel when it started. It was a summer's evening. And he said on the air, oh, I could, really, I could murder a Mushroomberry army. And, <laughs> and, they, and they said, why don't, we, why don't we go get him one? We'll drive up to Radio 1 and we'll go to reception and we'll give him, give him it and, then, and give him a copy of the record with it. So they did. And he, he was very grateful. He didn't come down himself, but he sent somebody down for it, then mentioned on air, I've just been given a Mushroomberry army by a lad called William Bragg. And uh, he played it at the wrong speed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but he did play it. He did play it. That's the amazing thing. Yeah. Which meant he played it again the next night at the right speed. So he yeah. got two plays in two yeah. days from one biryani. So, but that's Billy Bragg. That's what he was like. Imagine that, turning up with a mushroom biryani at Broadcasting House. I know. They, they'd run it through a scanner. They'd, yeah. have, yeah. A, they'd have a machine. Yeah. To, they'd to, clear yeah. the building. The yeah, they would be, be screened. Would, he'd still be there, waiting. <laughs> yeah. I went to Broadcasting House only the other week. I've been in there millions of times. I used to work there. And I had to have my photograph taken. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Blood group. Yeah, forget it. Anyway, so uh, he, he, when you look back at the times, it was a good time to be a sort of, you know, self-starting young yeah, person. Yeah, he was yeah. an entrepreneur, for heaven's sake. In but fact, he was also it. unique, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean... There was uh, nobody like Billy Bragg. It's true. When he was on Top of the Pops the first time, I mean, it's incredible to see, because that is one of the few that I think Mike Smith didn't present, so we can still see it. And I think it's, that's, that's yeah, between the walls. A man in a shirt, you know, that's all he is. And he did it live, of course, which you weren't supposed to do in those days, and so he bucked that orthodoxy. And it was just, it would be the same if you just saw him in the street busking. He just did that song, and it's such a powerful song. And who else, even at that politicised time, was writing songs about, you know, austerity I, I, I was trying to think war. today who the, the, his kind of precedents were. Who were, the, who were the people who, you know, was, was there anyone like people him before? He loved, I mean, people he loved as a kid, when he used to go to the record library in Barking, Simon and Garfunkel was one of his first yeah, albums. Yeah. No, but in terms of political yeah, well, British he, songwriters... Yeah, he actually wasn't. discovered those people later by playing the music he did. Yeah. He then got in, he met people like Leon Rosselson and uh, Dick Gotten, yeah, a Dick, very, yeah. very political um, guy who really came up through the minor strike. He was everywhere in the minor strike, and Billy Wills as well. So he kind of discovered these people sort of backwards, and he discovered Woody, Gass Woody Guthrie backwards. Um, so he, he didn't start out knowing who his antecedents were. Uh, he discovered them as he went along. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he, he thought he was basically just singing like a punk rocker would sing. He wasn't really yeah. thinking that he was tapping yeah. into the folk tradition, but he was. And he learned all of it because he's a, a voracious learner. Yes, this this I remember. So the the, the Porter Stack. I yeah. can remember being in Carnaby Street in, in Smash Hits in, in about 1985 and looking out the window <laughs> and trying to work out what this fantastic sound was reverberating <laughs> up from the pavement. And it was Billy Bragg with a with a, a battery powered amplifier and a rucksack on his back and a, a couple of poles with little speakers on the top, yeah. like antennae. And he was going around kind of just promoting himself, a kind of mobile unit, wasn't he? Well, he went out to New York at the uh, one of those seminars that they have in New York. 
and basically stood outside, basically busking outside the the, uh, the building until some people came out and noticed him. It's a brilliant bit and of And this is what you had to do in the age before, clearly, before the internet, yeah. the age before video even, really, wasn't yeah, true. it? true, and, I mean, he, yeah. he and no, Peter video. Jenner between them, you know, Peter Jenner was old school, you know, we've got to get yeah. the press interested in Brinsley Schwartz or whatever it was, and, uh, you know, they knew how to <coughs> get people's attention. Yeah. And that did it. I mean, that was in Smash Hits. I remember seeing that in Smash Hits and The Enemy, so they got The Enemy in Smash Hits and, you know... But he's also one. the kind of person who didn't mind putting on a show with no preamble or whatever. No. You know, he would stand up in front of anybody and yeah, sing. Absolutely and, right. And most people won't. No, I mean, he, and he's still, that's basically what he does now he for a living, that, still, no, yeah. all these years later. You go and see him now, he's having a kind of renaissance, the, the, the crowds are kind of swelling a little bit. Uh, I think because he's done such interesting records most recently, not just more Billy Brown right. albums. He's, you know, he's got more Americana. Some of the songs that he brought out last year were like instant responses to the news. There's a Brexit song and, yeah. and a global warming song, and that's, he just throws those out now, um, and that's how he works. But his fans don't mind that he talks or quite a lot of the time. And when they he, like it. They, they like it. The people who don't like it or didn't like it were members of the bands that he occasionally took yes. on Rogue Yeah, of course. I mean, he, the, Red, the Red Stars were the band that they built around him. When, when Godis decided it's time to turn Billy Bragg into a hit pop star at last, he's got to 29 enough times now. He sold 10,000 copies of his albums every time he put one out. Let's go for it. Let's spend a lot of money. We'll make videos for at least three of the singles. Really good ones, expensive ones. And they weren't like Bonnie Tyler videos. They were very funny videos uh, directed by Phil Jupiter. So they were excellent videos, totally in keeping with Billy Brown's kind of style. Sexuality uh, is still a brilliant song, and people love to hear him yeah. play it, but the video is absolutely hilarious. It's a brilliant, brilliant video. But they spent a lot more money on production, uh, a lot more money on marketing. Normally, Billy was a little bit reticent about having singles out at all. It didn't feel right to make somebody buy a record that was already on his other record. So... They put at least three singles out off the album, which he never wanted to happen, and they did anyway. They said, it's worth it, Bill. It's worth it, because you'll become a pop star, and it'll be different. At least it'll be different. And he started to grow his hair a little bit down the front, a fringe. You know, a little bit. Yeah. Because the words floppy fringe to him are a bit like paedophile. Uh, you know, uh, he, he, he goes, or Duran He's got very, 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 very deep-seated relation, uh, Sorry, resentments about Spandau Ballet, yeah, he's Spandau Ballet. He hates the idea of Spandau Ballet. I don't, he just decided they were the enemy. And Adam and the Ants, he detested Yeah, them. anybody yeah. who dressed up and put makeup on. But he would also sometimes <laughs> use the phrase floppy fringed. And then yeah. he actually had a floppy fringe. You've no idea what a, what a betrayal of himself and his own yeah. roots that was. I mean, at the time. You know. <laughs> and there was people like Smash Hits calling him the big nose bard from Barking. That's right. You know, which is brilliant. He used to call himself that, didn't yeah, he? He used he to loved call it. himself the big nose bastard from he Barking. He loved it, the big nose bastard from Barking, yeah. So um, I can't remember where we were going, but. Uh, well, they, they well, was, go this with drawing in with videos and so forth. Yeah, and so they, they did this big push and sold exactly the same amount of records right. and, they, and, and went to exactly the same number in the charts. So yet again, even the third single got, didn't even get in the top 40. And that's what third singles do, isn't it, unless you're super famous. So it was, a, it was an was experiment. was a major thing, wasn't it, for him? Because meeting yeah. Andy McDonald around Godis, because there was a real kind of uh, meeting of minds, wasn't there? You know? Yeah, I mean... Godis was a slightly hippie thing. They had a stray dog as the head of A&R. <laughs> that's true, they did that right? Dog, if I remember right. dog was their A&R. Yeah. And they, and they took... Porky the Poet, as he was then called, before he became Phil Jupiter's again, as the kind of... They'd made him a tour manager. He was not qualified to do it whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but he was the kind of guy they wanted around the office, and that's how Godis worked. Yeah. Before it was uh, completely bankrolled and, and eventually sort of um, sucked dry by Polygram, it really was an independent label doing independent things and thinking along its own lines. And when the house masters were signed... Pretty soon, they had a big hit. They were number one. They must, they? Yeah, they must be, by some measure, <coughs> the most successful independent company of well, that era. At that they, time, they, yeah. They yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they really were. Uh, and they, you know, they for a while weren't bankrolled by a major label. They really were their own men yeah. and women. Yeah. And Andy used to proudly say that both his acts didn't have to change before they went on stage. That's very they were true. kind of regular very people. True. And that's still house true. House Martins and Billy Bryant. Yeah, and it's still true now. Yeah, you, you got a cardigan, you could be in the House Martins. You basically. could, yeah. Exactly. So um, that was their gimmick, was it? Being really ordinary, yeah, salty, really authentic. Really. Yeah. yeah, that's why yeah. Uh, Norman Cook left, because he wasn't ordinary and the rest of them were. Although <laughs> yeah. they, they had a, this is another kind of sign of the times. There was a House Martins are gay story in The Sun. Uh, around that time, as if that because they were at number one, so they were fair game all of a sudden. So it basically said, you know, young men from Harlan Cardigans are gay, uh, which I think none of them were, one of them was. Uh, anyway, even if they were or weren't, that's how quickly 
And Billy saw that happen to his mates, people he'd been on tour with, that suddenly were on the front page of The Sun in a really nasty way. And he remembers waiting in a, a kind of reception, I think, of a TV company. And some commissionaire, as they would have happened in those days, was moaning about, and I always knew there was something funny about them. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, right. Like he'd known about them for years. Yeah. And, it, and, and Billy saw that and thought, I don't want that anyway. Just at the time when they were trying to turn him into a pop star, yeah. uh, he saw what happens if you get turned into a pop star. So the talking, the talking was an important part. It still is an important part yeah. of what he does. People like the idea he talks. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Um, but presumably also in his case, because he was, you know, although he'd failed his 11 plus and so forth, could always talk with anybody, couldn't he? Yeah. You could put him in with it. Say he's the person who ended up being the spokesman of Red Wedge and so forth, isn't he? Because yeah. he was the one they could trust to turn up. Yeah. Not saying he's stupid. That's true, and, and you know he's he's had a very long career on you know Question Time and yeah. Newsnight and all those because yeah. he's continually asked back on because yeah. he'll always have something to say. He's always cogent, um, up to speed, and um, so how does he feel about all that that side of him? I think because there's a lot of people who probably like Billy Bragg but don't particularly bother about his music at all. Well, there is there, you're right. Some people just enjoy seeing him on Question Time. He never gets to play his guitar on there, so I guess you know some people will only be aware of him as that left wing guy on the telly who seems very cross, but at the same time never loses his rag. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. It was quite genial, yeah. wasn't it? And, yeah, and he remains that, that way. And there's a line in one of his songs about um, taking a, a bomb to the last night of the proms. And he says, you know, uh, if you want to take a bomb, which he doesn't, into the last night of the proms, then you need to be the kind of guy they're not going to stop coming in with the bomb. And he said, I guess, you know, I, I was kind of saying, that's the kind of guy I am. You wouldn't, know, you know, you wouldn't stop me coming in somewhere. I wouldn't come in with a, a little mask on and a, and a fizzing bomb. I would probably get past security. So he never has done that, nor was he suggesting he would, but that's, what, that's the kind of, that's the, um, the stance he likes to take. Of course, it's a slight tangent. In the last few years, we've had the reality of bombs taken into gigs, haven't we? Yes, we have, yeah. And, uh, you know, in a very different political climate. Mm. Has he written songs about that? Not about that particular incident. Not that particular no. incident, but... Well, he's, um, he was at Glastonbury, because he curates the left field now every year at Glastonbury, which is generally him... Um, John Harris from The Guardian and um, Grace Petrie, the, uh, the left-wing singer-songwriter, and various other people. And they do talking shops. They were supposed to have Corbyn on uh, at the last but one. And uh, he had to go back to London because they were about to, <laughs> there had to be a blood-disc coup and get rid of him, so he had to go back to London. But he was there. They were there on the night, or the, the night after the Brexit vote came in. So he said, you know, it was... It was they were in the right place at the right time because they were away from the real life, even though they knew it was going on out there. It felt like they were somewhere safe, at least for another one day, before having to go back to it. <coughs> and um, he said it was like triage out there. Everybody was kind of looking after each other and, you know, seeing each other through it. And he said he went out and get, did the gig that night and the audience made the same noise when he went out on stage they would normally wait when he left stage. That's how fired up everybody was. So stuff like, you know, terrible things happening, whether it's a bomb going off in Manchester or Brexit going off uh, in uh, Westminster, is he will write a song about it. He will find some energy in there and turn it positive and, and, and give it back. And that's what he does. So which is why he's still sane, as far as I can see, um, and still with the same people that he's always been with, never, never, you know, never got divorced, never, still friends with everybody he was always friends with. You know, he's, he's fallen out with hardly anyone. I mean, how much do you think he, he benefited from the the um, the music press at the time? Because his music needed what he was doing and what he was writing about needed explanation. It needed sleeve notes. You know, it really yeah, benefited from people being able to review it at great length and allow him to explain it at great length. I don't know if it would be as easy now. I'm not sure, actually, without that kind of... without, without the equivalent of the music press there to, to allow you to explain it. Yeah, I mean, he, he would basically... Obviously, doesn't, he doesn't need the music press in a way, you know. He, he, yeah. and it, like an established artist, he is his own music press. You know, he has direct link to his band. Absolutely. Um, and if he's made a song, he'll record it and stick it out, and that's what he does. And... It is a business, so clearly he wants to be able to buy tickets to go and see him, but he understands that he's never going to make any money being an author, which is true. Unless <laughs> <Yeah>. you're <laughs> John Grisham, it's not going to happen. So uh, he, he loves the fact that he's allowed to write books. You know, the book that he wrote about Skipple yeah, yeah. is a very nicely written book, yeah. beautifully researched, spent a lot of time doing it. Um, every time he starts doing something, somebody else asks him to do something else and he has to put it to one side. And, but occasionally everything falls together. So, you know, while he was out researching... The book about Skiffle, 
taking it right back to Rock Island, where the Rock Island Line song was originally written. Um, he then had the idea of recording some songs in railway stations in America, yeah. old songs, you know, ancient songs from Americana's history. So an album came out of his research for the book, which then came out a little bit later. So everything seems to kind of somehow come together with Billy, even though it's a bit chaotic. He finds a way through it. What so the, he never gets bored. That, that's the thing. What do the Americans think of him? They're, they're becoming more and more interested in him, it seems. He's always done very well in Australia and, and still has some of his biggest shows in Australia. France couldn't give a fuck. <laughs> uh, he, they couldn't. He, he could, but he, he can't get, any, he can't uh, get arrested the, in France. What do the Americans think of the way he sings? Well, they, they, can they understand what he's yes. singing about? <laughs> well, obviously you can, but can they? But or even when he talks. But his American accent, his singing voice, is actually becoming more and more uh, easy on the ear. He's, you know, he's, he's improving incredibly as, a, as an American. <laughs> and, then, and then he'll do a, a song like um, Full English Brexit, which is done in the voice of a, a, a Brexiteer, a disgruntled Brexiteer, who doesn't like the fact that he doesn't know anyone who lives down his street anymore and um, wants to do something about it. And he sings that in his own voice. Uh, it's almost like a musical song. So he, he can sort of switch between one and the other. He did um, take down the Union Jack for the Queen's Golden Jubilee and got to sing it on top of the pops, which is pretty amazing. But that's, again, like a musical song. So he sort of has one foot in the musical tradition, the Cockney tradition, effectively, he's, um, he's and, the, and the other... Deep in the heart of Texas. He's an old fashioned entertainer, isn't he? He really is, yeah. And that's the thing. When, when he did a tour with the Red Stars. He is. Yeah, after he is. The, after, in, during the pop star experiment, they, they got a proper band together. Wiggy, his best mate, was in the band. Uh, that's Juliet, yeah, his partner. Yeah. That's the, the firm. And um, they went out on tour with the Red Stars. The Red Stars really excited, fired up. But they would have to wait at least for the length of a song, if not twice that long, between each song, while Billy just talked to the audience. So they'd be just sitting around, twiddling their thumbs, you know, fiddling with the knobs on the, on the amps, while he talked. So he realised at the end of the day, the best way for him to tour is to just go out and tour on his own. Because then he can talk as long as he bloody likes. And he does. See, I, my theory is I think people's favourite bit is the talking when they go to gigs. Yeah, it is. And, I, I and it to, always used to be the case. I went to a gig recently, you know, the most recent gig that I went to see, and he's just... It, he's, he does learn it. Yeah. Some of it, I mean, he's talking about the songs, usually, or something that's just happened to talk about off the top of his head. Um, but he has a kind of pattern that he works out and he hones it and makes it better. So if you go and see him at the end of a tour, you will get a better show, effectively. The music will be good from first date, but his actual kind of patter will get better But actually, better. It's, the, it's the stuff in between. It's the, it's the stuff that people say that's often, often the most memorable. Yeah, I tell you what, uh, the, he, even his most loyal audience really struggle with being interested in global warming because that was the one song that he played, a really kind of serious uh, song about the rising tide. And beforehand, he's, he does this stuff that he really means a lot to him. It's just, it was just the only part that wasn't quite crackling yeah, along yeah. with the audience. People were going to the bar. Uh, and they love, they're the people who love Billy Bragg. It's funny how one thing just doesn't quite get across. He tries, it just doesn't quite catch their imagination. That's why we're all going to die. So his wife, his wife is his manager. Yeah. There. I mean, how does, how does that work? Because managers are usually the people who have to give artists bad news. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, I'm sure she still does. But, uh, and her sister also works. So the, the three of them now work down in Dorset on the Billy Bragg tours and stuff. But actually, you know, when the, the financial crash came in 07 and 08... They realised that even they, you know, trying to keep things real and just basically um, um, running a solo artist were spending too much money. You know, that he recorded uh, one, his album, uh, Mr Love and Justice, which has got some lovely songs on it, but doesn't cohere as an album. Even a fan would agree with that, and so would Billy. Um, it was because he did half of it in one studio, then they packed up and then went to another studio, just for the hell of it, and that cost a lot of money, as you know. And so that cost a lot of money, and the same amount of people bought it, obviously, as yeah. the one before. And then the crash hit, and they thought, we've got to think of a new way of doing this, which is when they... Peter Jenner then moved into a consultative role, so he wasn't hands-on anymore. And he's, he, he, and he's, you know, he's, he's obviously still doing what he always did, which is going around the world and talking on seminars about management and the record companies. But he no longer looks after Billy. So they basically do do it themselves. It's a but DIY she had a operation. major effect on him, I think. I mean, she was the manager of Selector, wasn't she? She was the manager of Selector, which was about 19 yeah. or 20 years old. She, she kind of helped set like up two -tone. the... She set up uh, the first two-tone tour, I think, and she set up Madstock, the, uh, the That's right. notorious um, festival with madness. So she really knew what she was doing. But also and she really changed the, the way 
people saw him, as far as I could see. You know, a bit like um, you know, Tom Waits' wife kind of changed his kind of uh, his image and, and the way he projected himself and the songs he wrote about. I mean, she, she sort of around the time they got together was when the enemy. All this stuff was coming out on CDs, wasn't it? The enemy were reviewing his entire back catalogue, and they yeah. were kind of feeling actually we're getting a bit tired of this guy. He's, he's sort of was a hectoring, point. kind yeah. of political, slightly boring, and he just needed a change. Yeah, that, and, and she one, was quite instrumental in that. I mean, one of the uh, one of the plastic bags has the reviews of those, you know, the full catalogue reissue, where younger journalists were coming in who had no history with him and were going, what's 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 this about? about? Yeah, what's this bloke doing? What's he talking about? What what is austerity? And so (laughs) he he kind of fell between two generations there. Um, I think he's kind of pulled it back a bit now, or at least the ones who were already old uh, are older and therefore even keener now to show that they're not too old to go to gigs. So who's his audience now? Uh, Me. You, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah his, his audience. There's a there's a great uh, little anecdote at the end of the book where he's been on tour with Joe Henry. Joe Henry. Uh, picture, we're looking at a picture oh, of the. Yeah. yeah. Um, they've they've really they've really discovered each other. They're very good for each other. Joe Henry pr- produced Tooth and Nail, which was the stripped down post financial crash album, which they recorded in in Joe's basement in Pasadena. And it's absolutely brilliant. I I love that album. It's really like a refreshing start. And there's American stuff on it where he sings American. And he doesn't play guitar on it because Joe said, you you can hold the guitar, but you're not allowed to play it. (laughs) He made him just sing, you know, be a singer. So it's a great album. And they became best mates for life. And then have since made these field recordings of railroad songs going across America. Um, so they're obviously kindred spirits. But they did some uh, gigs in Australia. And after these uproarious gigs, people love him in Australia, and they love the two of them together. And they were sitting in, I think, an airport, or if there is an airport in Byron Bay, uh, the nearest airport to Byron Bay, which is uh, quite in the middle of nowhere, I think. And uh, people get coming up to, to Billy and saying, oh, I loved the gig last night, it was a brilliant gig. And after a sort of string of people had come up and said these things to him, Billy said to Joe, he said, uh, have you noticed that all the people that come up and talk to me are basically old and grey and bald? And, he's, and Joe said, no, all I notice is that people come up and talk to you right. and that you've got fans. Yeah. He said, you know, that, that's all I notice, that you've got fans. Yeah, Which is pretty good going when you're 60, to have fans. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's probably the, that's the sort but of... But Joe Henry is a wonderful musician, but he doesn't have fans, really, does no, he? No, not really. Yeah. And in fact, he's probably got, got some now. Well, yeah, yeah possibly. One of the things up. I love about I, I always listen to any record that Joe Henry produces because he records yeah. them usually in his house with the windows with open. the windows open. Yeah, exactly, that's right. Yeah. So you can hear the buses going past. Yeah, and things brilliant. Like that. I love that. Yeah, and I, I love. And Joe. you can hear the acoustic of the whole room, can't yeah. you? Yeah, single yeah. microphone. So we talked about Billy's book, his Skiffle book, which is yeah. a really good book. Um, and so this is this is an example. We're looking at a picture of Billy, I think, playing in a bicycle shop. It's a bicycle. Yes, I can't remember yeah. where it is now, but that's the kind of interesting. He's always coming up <laughs> with these fascinating places to yeah. play. And it's really inventive. Can you? Do you know where that was? I don't know where that no. is, but I bet it's Australia. Uh, right, yeah, <laughs> it could well, well be. be. There's a lot of people there. So well I mean, be. the thing that strikes me it, it, it is interesting. I mean, how long is his career now? A long time. Well, yeah, I mean, he was... Uh, I mean, it really started in 19... If you don't count Riff Raff, which was a kind of uh, a training wheels part before the army, but after the army, like Elvis, when he came out of the army, yeah, yeah. it was about 1982, 83, so that was his professional career. So it's a, it's a long old career. Yeah, it is, yeah. And he's done it on his own terms, hasn't he? Yeah, well, and he owns his own back catalogue. Nobody owns their own back catalogue. Ray and, Charles did. Apart from Ray Charles, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and he's dead. So yeah. uh, Billy's the only alive person that owns his substantial back catalogue, you know, uh, because he did that deal with Andy, Andy McDonald and everybody was happy and, and Cooking Vinyl put the records out but they just licensed them to put out and they still belong to Billy at the end of the day so that's, he doesn't need to think about his pension in that sense because he's got it already unless everybody stops buying his records forever tomorrow So how long do you think he'll keep going? I think, I think he'll keep going until he can't play yeah, will you be updating this book in, in 20 years' yeah. time? Yeah, I mean, the great thing is I'll always be younger than him, so I'll probably, uh, I'll be, I'll be able to write the last one as well, won't I? Yeah. yeah. But he's, uh, he, he doesn't seem like the sort of person... I mean, he slowed down. I've, I've got the... I have the spreadsheets, and I've taken the basic information from the basic spreadsheets, which he worked out, because he's a fastidious keeper of records, that how many gigs he's done in every year that he's been a professional oh, go on. since 82. Good. So in 1980... I'm not going to read them all out. Yeah. In 1980, it's not in the book, so, you know, you have to come up to me afterwards. 
1982, he did 27 gigs, right, which is just, just starting out. Yeah. In 1983, he did 101. So he went from 27 to 101. So this is, he's really picking up speed. The most he ever did in a year was 104, which was at the end of the 80s. When his appendix goes in 1993, he goes from 62 to 12 to 2. So even when his appendix bursts, he still managed to do two gigs. <laughs> so um, about the last couple of years, it's gone back up again. Which is really interesting. So it's not, yeah, it you think it would just dr- go slower and slower and quieter and quieter, but it doesn't. In 2013, he did 102, which was the highest number of gigs he'd done since 1989. So you can see that it's not like the career that starts loads and loads of gigs and then gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Far from it, it goes up and down, depending on what record he's got out and you know, what other yeah. projects he's got, if he's writing a book or not. These are the things that will take gig time away from him. So he, you know, he, if he didn't write books, he would probably be doing 102 And it's amazing how much stuff he does because he's writing columns isn't he? And he's yeah. making television programmes. He, he, he presented a bit of a Glastonbury programme with Boris Johnson, if I remember right. Well, he did, and, and that, was, that was one of the things. Going, uh, you haven't asked me much about um, redoing the book, but redoing the book was a painstaking thing because every time we've redone it, I've tried to read back the entire thing to see if anything needed updating. Yeah. And I found the, the piece where he did the Glastonbury programme with Boris Johnson. And when I wrote it, Boris Johnson was not even mayor. Uh, so I had to update it because it just said spectator editor Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah. And it was a fun story about Billy and Boris going to Glastonbury and being filmed and Boris getting a henna tattoo and stuff like that. Um, so I had to update it to, say, to describe him as yeah, he yeah. described now, which is Boris Johnson, um, future London mayor, uh, future foreign secretary and international nuisance. So it's really, <laughs> it's really nice to go in and, and just bring it up to date. <laughs> Perfect. There's also a bit in there about why people... Why men of a certain age still read the music press, which felt ghostly. Yeah, it's like ghostly. I mean, really. And so I had to put have, you changed, in, have you changed it? It's all in past tense. Right, right. It's horrible to have to do that. Right. It's like somebody dying. You then it put is. Late, it's an epitaph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a horrible thing well, to do. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating it's a career, and he's very fortunate to have his, his own Boswell. He does call me yeah. Boswell. It took me bloody ages to get him to call me Boswell. <laughs> yeah. He called me Boswell in the back of a cab in Manchester on the way to have a curry, and I was so and pleased. You'll yeah. never forget so that pleased. at all. Yeah. It's been yeah. delightful to talk, uh, talk to you about Also, he doesn't make any money from the book. Good. Well, it's important to say that he, he, you know, he sells them on tour, and you know, but he doesn't actually get any royalties. Well, with a bit of luck, you will, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Collins. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.